Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. Actually, I'm going to read verse 14 because of its context. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him. And he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. In chapter 12, the bitterness and the anger and the resentment and the antagonism towards Jesus will continue to grow. You'll remember in verse 14, which we just read, the Pharisees had a plot to kill him, to put him to death. In their minds, Christ's willingness to heal on the Sabbath proved to them that he wasn't God. Remember, his arguments had not convinced them. His compassion had not convinced them. His miracles of mercy only further enraged them. And so, Jesus withdraws in order to reduce the tension and in order to not fuel the flames of the conflict. He does so not out of fear, not out of anger, but Jesus knows that his time has not yet come. Jesus knows that there's a lot of work that's been left to be done and, and God has a plan and a purpose and as the plan and the purpose unfolds, he wants to make sure that all that God has planned and purposed would come to pass. Great multitudes continue to pursue Jesus for blessing and healing in verse 15. Jesus urges them not to proclaim his deeds in verse 16. And again, part of the point of this passage is why would he do such a thing? And like I've said to you, Jesus doesn't want to inflame the hostility. He wants to reduce the hostility towards him, at least for the time being. And so Matthew sees in Christ's behavior a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. Remember, Jesus is the prophesied king and Messiah in verses 17 through 21. And every part of the prophecy reveals something deep and rich for everyone who believes and trusts the Messiah, trusts Jesus as the Savior. Matthew reminds us of the king's position in verse 18, his power in verse 18, his program in verse 19, his patience in verse 20, his promise in verse 21. The prophecy reminds us that the Messiah is the king, but then he tells us what kind of a king he's going to be. He is a humble king. He is a quiet king. He is a gentle ruler. He's not obnoxious and overbearing and overwhelming. In compassion and humility, he will eventually bring justice to the nations. But part of the point of the prophecy is he's going to bring salvation to individuals before he brings justice to the nations. So in spite of the opposition and antagonism towards Jesus... A multitude of the Gentiles will eventually accept him. Part of the point of the passage in the prophecy is to prompt the disciples of Jesus to do exactly the same. Jesus is meek. 
And so we will be meek. Jesus adopts a quiet and humble spirit. And so we adopt a quiet and a humble spirit. Our lives are marked by love and grace and patience. So in broad terms, the coming of Jesus prompts the exact two responses that whenever anyone ever talks about Jesus, these same two responses will inevitably take place. Antagonism and rejection or need and acceptance. And so Matthew reminds us that Christ's attitude to their response was predicted. That Jesus acts in such a way, but it shouldn't come as a surprise to you. It shouldn't come as a surprise to me. And so he's pointing out in the book of Isaiah, the prophets knew what kind of a Messiah that we would have. The humility of Jesus, the meekness of Jesus, the lowliness of Jesus will account for his authority in verse 18. Reveal his gentleness in verses 19 and 20. And serve as the path to the eventual exaltation of Jesus it's what you already know his humiliation will precede his exaltation and so look at verse 15 the conscious king and so he says in verse 15 but when Jesus knew it in other words he knew that the religious leaders and the Pharisees specifically were committed to making sure that he was no more it says he withdrew from there. And great multitudes followed him. And he healed them all. The reason why this becomes important again is we look at the text when it says, but when Jesus knew it. It doesn't come as a, as a shock and a surprise to us that he knows about the bitterness. He knows about the antagonism. He knows about the rejection. It's not that he's unfamiliar. He knows. He's aware that the leaders want to kill him. But let's talk about what else he's aware of. He's aware, he's conscious of his father's plan. He's aware of the mission of his life. He withdraws based on the hardness of heart and the bitterness and the rage on the part of those who sought to destroy him. Jesus is also conscious that the religious leaders and authorities will eventually succeed in their plan. He's not oblivious to the fact that they hate him and they want to kill him. And by the way, it's one thing to know that a person hates you and wants to kill you. And it's another thing to know that eventually their dreams will come true. What the religious leaders didn't know was that this was a part of God's plan as well. It's a part of God's plan. What? It should shock you. You mean God also wants Jesus dead? Yes. But not for the reasons that the religious leaders embrace. It's for the reasons that you already know. The Father loves you. The father's willing to allow his own son to satisfy the just requirements or the penalties for sin. The death of Jesus isn't a cosmic accident. It isn't some sort of tragic mistake. It isn't a series of circumstances that somehow went wildly wrong. It was a part of God's greater plan. And the whole issue at this point isn't whether or not Jesus is going to die. The whole issue at this point is what about God's timing? And so it was not Jesus' time to die. And so he withdraws from those who sought to harm him. Still, now think about that. Even in spite of all of those things, it says great multitudes. That means many people followed him. So great multitudes continue to follow him and he heals them all. Those who believed him and trusted him. But did he heal them all? 
in the sense of those who didn't necessarily believe him, didn't necessarily trust him. I'm going to suggest to you that I think so. I think many people came to him with all kinds of different illnesses and Jesus healed many people. And I'm going to suggest to you that sometimes he healed people who didn't fully love him or fully didn't fully accept him. You'll remember in the story of Luke chapter 17 verses 11 through 19, there was the story of the 10 lepers who came to him and he healed them all, but only one returned. Only one acknowledged gratitude. Only one acknowledged his act of love and compassion. So when Jesus heals, he's not simply imparting power. He's demonstrating divine love and divine compassion. And all of this goes back to what you already know. Jesus loves people, damaged people, broken people, injured people, devastated people. So when Jesus heals, he is in effect giving those who come a sneak peek, a preview into a future kingdom where he is in fact the king. He is in control in his kingdom where he is king, broken, hurting, devastated, damaged people are returned to wholeness and wellness. Everything Jesus does, he does in part to fulfill prophecy, but in part to reveal the truth about God, the heart of God, what's going inside of God's mind, a peek into the Father's character. And so the people Jesus healed has suffered unimaginable abuse, government abuse from Rome, religious abuse from the religious leaders, physical disability, accident, injury, disease. The list could go on and on. And I'm sure that Jesus did not heal them simply in order to make himself look good or to further his kingdom. He doesn't even heal them on the basis of the source of their injury, whether it came from the government or religious abuse or the wicked world in which we live in. Jesus healed them on the basis of their willingness to come to him. And by the way, that provides a clue and an insight that you should be able to take with you home today and be able to use it for the rest of your life. On what basis is Jesus willing to heal people? It's on the basis of their willingness to go to him. And that's why we should urge people, prompt people, encourage people to go to Christ. And so the consequences, by the way, when he, he doesn't necessarily care if the reason that you go to him is because you've made a horrible mistake or willful disobedience or foolish decisions. There's lots of things that we do that are wrong. And there are lots of things where there's consequences for the things that we do. Are there consequences for poor choices? Yes. But I'm here to tell you that the consequences never include, they never include abandonment by God. They never include the exhaustion of his grace. The consequences never include no mercy, no hope, no forgiveness. His mercies are limitless. His grace is inexhaustible. His forgiveness is available. And so if you ever wondered, if you ever wondered, if there was ever a moment that you ever wondered where you woke up one morning and you thought, and you asked yourself this question, what I have done, I'm wondering if God would take me back. I have it on good authority that the answer is yes. That the answer to your question is that 
even you haven't exhausted his patience, his mercy, and his grace. The very fact that your heart is broken and the very fact that you could ask that question and the very fact that you could want it to be a possibility in my mind makes it a possibility. His grace and his love and his mercy are willing to come down from heaven and minister to the needs of your soul. And so in verse 16, when it says, yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. Now there's several things that I want to draw to your attention that I've already hinted at. It shouldn't come as a surprise to you that Jesus discouraged certain people from coming to him. And let me make sure you understand what I mean, coming to him. That means here, make him known. I'm not for a moment suggesting that people not come to Jesus. In the context, what Jesus is basically asking is that he has a plan and a purpose and that in order to fulfill those plans and purposes, he wants people to limit their response to what he's done for them. Jesus wouldn't have agreed with the sentiment that there's no such thing as bad publicity. Jesus would have disagreed with the idea, hey, I don't care what you say about me just so you spell my name right. J-E-S-U-S-C-H-R-I-S-T. That's not what's happening. Jesus wants, like I said, to avoid a premature confrontation with those who want to kill him. Jesus doesn't want to be pushed forward by public acclamation as the king of the nation. Jesus understands his mission. He is conscious, remember what we already learned, deeply aware of his messianic mission. He's the suffering servant. He's going to die for the world. He knows that the people are aching for a political savior. He knows that the people are aching for someone who will liberate them from the tyranny of Rome. Just like Jesus remains aware that there's certain kind of people who want a different kind of a Jesus than the Jesus who's represented in the New Testament. They want a Jesus who will make all of their dreams come true. They want a Jesus who will, won't judge them under any circumstance. They want a Jesus who doesn't care about who they are or what they do. They don't want the savior of the New Testament. Promotion and exposure at this point is going to cause him deep harm or lead to a premature revolt. So Jesus has to prevent a revolution in order to help fulfill the plan of God and accomplish his mission. And this should remind each and every one of you of something. When Jesus asks you to do something, it's going to be for one of two reasons. To hinder the plan or to further the plan to help the plan or make the plan more difficult. Now, Jesus is Jesus. He has unlimited access to all of the information, able to make the right choice. The people of Israel longed for political independence. They wanted to be counted among the free nations of the world. Again, John MacArthur writes, quote, Perhaps the most important reason Jesus did not want his miracle power to be too highly acclaimed was that this was not the time of his exaltation, but of his humiliation, unquote. And I think that's exactly right. The time that was left would need to include certain object lessons to lead up to the mission, God's plan. And what it meant for Jesus to be the savior of the world. And once again, Jesus would use the time left to him to remind his followers that his kingdom at this point is spiritual and not material. That it is future and not just present, but permanent and eternal, not just moral or temporal. And this might be hard for some people to believe. Jesus doesn't perform the miracles in order to be famous. He doesn't do it to build a donor base. He doesn't do it to draw large crowds. He doesn't do it in order to launch a radio ministry or a TV ministry or an internet ministry. 
does it shock you that Jesus heals these people because he loves them and he cares about them. He heals because it proves his claims. It authenticates his authorities. But I want to also remind you of something else. This text shouldn't serve as a proof text to keep your love and your loyalty to yourself. This is a remarkable circumstance. The remarkable circumstance that Jesus is talking about is I'm asking you to keep certain things quiet so that God's plan can, be, can unfold. Imagine if a person said to you, you mean you want me to lie? Does Jesus want people to lie? No. You mean you don't want me to tell the truth? Does Jesus want people to tell the truth? But are there certain truths that if said in a premature way or an unloving way, are there certain things that can be disclosed that won't help the plan of God? It will actually maybe hinder the plan of God and even hurt people. Now, here's what I'm not suggesting even for a moment. I'm not suggesting even for a moment that you keep your love and your loyalty of Jesus a secret. What I'm suggesting is that you think about what it is in the context in which it's given and ask yourself this question. When I'm praying, when I'm reading my Bible, when I'm listening to God and when God's asking me to do certain things, when God says to me, I I need you to keep your mouth shut at this point. Or I need you to refrain from saying that. But it's true. That's not what's at issue here. The issue isn't whether or not it's true. The issue is are you able to say it in such a way that it's both truthful and loving. The Bible says that the law came by Moses, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ. Can it be done graciously at the same time? And so look again at verse 17. As you look at verse 17, when it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet. Now we're going to focus on verses 17 through 20. Now, I I just need to give you a quick heads up just very quickly. Matthew explains Christ's ministry as a fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. This prophecy is found in chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And by the way, one of the interesting things about this passage, this is the longest reference to an Old Testament passage in all of Matthew's gospel. And the word servant is interesting, that it might be spoken by Isaiah in verse 18. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen... The word servant is really interesting in this passage. It's a word that means an intimate servant, a special servant, a chosen servant. We might think of this as an ambassador or one who has intimate knowledge of the sender's authority and heart. The word was used in the ancient world to describe a servant who was entrusted with the most precious and sensitive information of both the king and the kingdom. It was used to describe servants who had sacred charges over the king's children or over the king's business, over the king's wealth, over the king's important allies. And so in this kind of way, Jesus is God's chosen servant in verse 18. He's the commissioned servant. He's the comforting king. He is the king who is calm. And part of Matthew's quote is to persuade the people that Jesus represents the God of Israel in every way. Jesus isn't weird. He isn't eccentric. He isn't strange. And you might be wondering, why do you even have to bring that out? Because a lot of people are weird. They are eccentric. They are strange. And so when people are being weird, 
It's really not indicative of the nature of God or the character of God. Isaiah is reminding us that Jesus is going to draw attention to his father and his father's message. And again, think about it for just a moment. This is, should be mind-blowing to you. Jesus heals hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. Jesus feeds thousands more. Jesus speaks to thousands more. Yet in the Garden of Gethsemane, the religious leaders plot to betray Jesus with a kiss, the sign of affection and intimate relationship and friendship. How is it that they did that? Because they wanted to make sure that they recognized him How is it that you can do so much good? How can you be such a good person doing so much good and be completely unrecognized by the religious establishment? We live in Denver. Anyone who lived here for even a little bit of time knows what John Elway looks like. Everyone knows what Peyton Manning looks like. How could you not know what a person looks like who has made such an impact on the community? How can someone do so much good and still be almost completely unrecognizable? The answer, according to John Corson, is that Jesus was moved with such humility, such grace, such selflessness that a lot of people wouldn't have been able to pick him out on the street. A lot of people must have wondered, well, if you're the Messiah, if you've done all of these things, why don't more people recognize you? And again, this is the point of Isaiah. The point of Isaiah is he's meek. Humble, lowly, he doesn't exalt himself. Remember in the New Testament, his own brother said to him, if you really want to be famous, you should move your ministry headquarters to Caesarea or Jerusalem or even Rome. Why do you spend so much time in these backwater places? Why do you spend so much time with the hurting and the needy? Why do you waste all of your time on these 12 guys If you want to launch a worldwide ministry, you're going to have to think way bigger. But here's the point. Jesus is operating according to the plan of his father in submission to his father in order to glorify his father. And so he's the chosen servant. Look what it says in verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen. The passage in Isaiah gives a detailed and lovely description of the Savior. Look what it says. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. The exclamation behold is meant to draw our attention to Jesus, to point us To Jesus, the word chosen speaks of a firm resolution. We're not left with the impression that Jesus is the father's second choice or third choice or fourth choice. Now, again, why is this important for each and every one of us? For the people who will say, you know what? Jesus wasn't God's first choice. Well, his first choice was What's his name living out in the wilderness or this particular religious leader or that particular religious leader? Is Jesus God's first choice to save you and forgive you and reconcile you? That's the point. The Hebrew God of the Old Testament, God the Father has chosen Jesus. His decision is final. He's not going to revisit the choice. And this is why Jesus is described as the chosen one. Because he's chosen by the Father, the choice pleases the soul of God. And it doesn't matter what the world thinks. And that's part of the point of the passage. He's been rejected by the religious leaders. He's being antagonized and reviled against just like the world in which you live in. 
You live in a culture and a society that Jesus isn't their first choice. You live in a culture and a society that doesn't make godliness a priority and doesn't point people to Jesus. You live in a culture and a society that hasn't simply chosen Jesus. Jesus is God's choice and the world's choice is rarely God's choice. The testimony of the father's choice was heard in Matthew 3.17 when, when we read, And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You can only come to God in a way that pleases God. For the person who says, I want to know God and I want to please God, then you have to come to God on God's terms. And God's terms is his chosen son. So we have to come to Jesus. We can't come to him with our good works or our best effort or our sincere attitude. When Warren Buffett, the second richest man in the world, gave Bill Gates, the first richest man in the world, $8.7 billion, and he said, I am so happy. You see, there is more than one way to go to heaven. Mr. Buffett's in, a, in for a terrible shock. You can't buy your way to heaven. Even with 8.7 billion. You might think, well, what is the, what is the price tag? Can, can I go to heaven for $100,000? Can I go to heaven for a million dollars? Can I go to heaven for $10 million? How much money do I have to put out before people will recognize I'm a good person? And the Bible says, good works, best effort, sincere attitude. That's not the basis. And look what it says in verse 18 again. My beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. God placed his Holy Spirit on Jesus in this unique way. At his water baptism, you'll remember again, the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. He remains on Jesus. This doesn't mean that Jesus was somehow not chosen before that or not anointed before that incident. Jesus is conceived when the Holy Spirit overshadows his mother at the point of conception. Jesus is called my beloved in the text. Look what it says of Isaiah. My beloved. Why? Because he pleases his father. And so his father puts his spirit upon him. In what way? In a commissioning way. Bestowing power and authority. Jesus is one person with two natures. Completely human. Completely God. His humanity in no way diminishes his deity. His deity in no way diminishes his humanity. In his humanity, he relies on the power of the Holy Spirit while retaining all the power of God. And so, he's the commissioned Christ. And that's part of the point. As the Messiah, he receives this authenticating power to attest to his royal service. Jesus, remember, lives in relative obscurity. And when Jesus is, enters the ministry, the Holy Spirit comes upon him in a unique way. And you'll recall elsewhere where the Old Testament prophet Isaiah said, and he quotes that prophet, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Jesus is the chosen servant who functions according to his father's will. He is the commissioned servant who functions under the auspices of the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit. I want you to think about this again in its context. He's rejected by the religious authorities. He's accepted by the Father and the Spirit. And you may be rejected by someone. A husband, a wife, a son, a daughter, a friend, 
a family member. You might be rejected at school and rejected at home or rejected on the job. You go there and they go, oh, everybody be quiet. The Christian is here. Be careful. The Christian just showed up. Don't say anything evil or sinful. They mock you. They despise you. They reject your Savior. They reject you. And it should cause you to smile. You need to be able to say, I'm accepted by everyone who matters most. The Father accepts me. The Son accepts me. The Holy Spirit accepts me. If you're accepted by the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, does it really matter who rejects you? Not really. And so, look what it says. And he will declare justice to the Gentiles. Here, justice means doing what's right towards God and men. It's living right and doing right. Here, when it says, he will declare, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. I'm going to suggest to you, it means that Jesus will proclaim the right way for people to live out their lives here on their earth. Jesus will proclaim something about himself and his father's message. The philosopher Blaise Pascal noted that, quote, justice and power must be brought together so that whatever is just may be powerful and whatever is powerful may be just. Leon Joseph Swinnens got it right when he wrote, quote, the preaching of the gospel and its acceptance imply a social revolution whereby the hungry are fed and justice becomes the right of all, unquote. Jesus and the prophet Isaiah are going to make it abundantly clear that salvation will precede social justice. But that doesn't mean that social justice isn't important or that justice isn't important. Not only is Jesus the Jewish rest, Shabbat, he's also the Gentile savior. And so when it says he will do justice to the Gentiles, I'm going to suggest you it implies several different things. The word Gentile here is the word ethnos. It means the nations or the people groups. Jesus rejected by the religious authorities and the Jews by and large is going to be accepted by the nations and of the over 1 billion people who self-describe themselves as Christians. They're drawn from over 185 nations around the world. And so the fact that the Messiah will be received by the Gentiles. Do you think that this is going to create joy or grief in the religious authorities' minds? If you answered grief, you answered correctly. Why is it going to create grief? Because the religious authorities don't like the Gentiles. They don't like them. For many people, they exercised profound prejudice. For some Jewish people, they thought that the Gentiles were literally created by God in order to provide fuel for the fires of hell. But according to the Bible, God created the people on the earth because he loves them and cares about them. He didn't put people in the different places in order to condemn them, but in order to save them. The Lord's intention was always that Israel would be a light and a channel, a window, a picture to the watching Gentile world. God made a promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be Blessed. The first person Jesus reveals his messianic identity to is a Samaritan woman. Think Gentile. Early on he has followers from Idumea and Transjordan and the regions of Tyre and Sidon. 
And some of the religious leaders resent Jesus for paying any attention whatsoever to the Gentiles. But the thing that, again, they resented the most was that he treated Gentiles who, again, were repulsive with dignity and respect. Do you realize that we live in a world where people want you to hate the people that they hate? And love the people that they love. You know what? It's been my experience that people are far more willing and accepting of you. Not on the basis of wealth or poverty or color of your skin. You know what seems to generate the most antagonism? Political ideology. It reminds me of that story of this man who wanted to commit suicide. He's standing on the bridge. He's getting ready to jump. A guy comes by and he goes, please, please don't jump. Please, please wait. There's a God who loves you. He goes, I know. I'm a Christian. He goes, really? Catholic or Protestant? Protestant. Really? Uh, Methodist? Um, Presbyterian? Baptist? He goes, Baptist. He goes, American? Free will Baptist or American Baptist? American Baptist. From, 19, from 1898 or 1917? 1917. Jump, you heretic pig. How much do I have to agree with you before I'll go, hey, yeah, I think maybe it's a good idea for you to live. But I'm getting off track. Look what it says in verse 19. He will not quarrel or cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. What does that mean? Will not quarrel means he refuses to fight. We live in a world where radical Islam says, if you don't agree with me, genocide. The Christian who loves Jesus should say, you don't agree with me, I'm going to pray for you, and I'm going to continue to pray for you, and I'm going to continue to urge you to, to turn from your sin and to turn from the Savior. I'm going to try and minister to you and reach out to you with love and with reason. Jesus isn't going to brawl. To cry out means to scream wildly. The word was used in the ancient world to describe those who make animal noises or obnoxious sounds like barking or howling or squawking. The idea is that Jesus isn't going to act like a madman shouting through the streets. Jesus isn't a person who yells and screams. He's not a charlatan. He's not a huckster. He's not a person who makes his way into the marketplace screaming and yelling. He's meek. He's quiet. He's humble. He's gentle. Again, John MacArthur writes, quote, he spoke with dignity and control and he used no means of persuasion but the truth. So are we here to manipulate people into having a right relationship with God? Force them, beat them, hurt them. Is the best way to minister to a person is to hurt them. That can't be right. Jesus doesn't use TV evangelist tactics. He doesn't whip people into an emotional frenzy. He never demands anything from his audience. Do you read anywhere in the Bible where he says, give me money? There's only one instance. And he says, show me a coin. And he uses it in order to illustrate a point. He never says, give me money. He never says, give me weapons. He never says, give me position. He never says, give me authority. He never demanded a meeting with the Roman emperor. He never demanded a meeting with Judea's governor. He never campaigned for a political candidate. Now, that doesn't mean I'm here to say don't campaign for a political candidate. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that Jesus wasn't looking for political solutions to spiritual problems. My point is that he never uses a political agenda or physical force or emotional manipulation ever. 
In Ecclesiastes 9.17, we read, words of the wise spoken gently should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. We live in a culture and a society wherever whoever screams the loudest gets the attention. But somehow we need to figure out a way to speak a little bit more quietly. Even the ungodly world has enough sense to know that real change can't come through threat, fear, or intimidation. And look what it says, the comforting king. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. The area of Judea and Galilee were filled with marsh reeds and desert rivers and desert streams. And some reeds were used to make paper. And kids would sometimes cut reeds. And they'd make flutes out of them. If a reed was bent or broken or bruised, it was an idiomatic expression in that culture to say it was basically worthless. Oh, That broken reed, the bruised reed, the bent reed, the broken reed, what are you going to do with it? Nothing. It's now lost its value. The smoking flax, the word flax is linon in the Greek language. What word do you get? Have you ever heard of the word linen? That's where the word comes from. It's where they would take plant fibers, and they would make wicks. They would put it on top of the oil to burn, just like you would burn maybe a piece of cotton to use it as a wick. And so if you've ever lit a candle and you let it burn all the way down to the wax, once the wick is gone, all the candle can do is just simply blow smoke. A candle with no wick can't generate any light. What use is a broken candle? Worthless. Smoldering wicks? Useless. Broken reeds? Useless. So what's the point? The prophet's using these examples to show that Messiah's ministry is to the brokenhearted, to the broken, to the discarded, to those that others seem useless, worthless, the battered reed, the smoldering wick. These are the people rejected by the world, rejected by their families, rejected by the people. But Jesus doesn't reject them. And it could be a reference to Jesus himself. Rejected by the Jewish nation. Rejected by the religious leaders. You know, even today... There are people who will use this argument. If Jesus really was the Jewish Messiah, then why didn't the Jews accept him? Your answer needs to be, come to church with me. Your question is a good question. And the whole New Testament is the answer to your question. The helpless, the suffering, the burdened. The religious leaders would say, these people are no longer useful. And by the way, when you live in a world or a culture or a society where they want something from you or they want a vote from you or they want some, some, something from you and you give it to them and you're no longer useful to them and they go, guess what? You're no longer useful to me. I don't want to have anything to do with you. And Jesus is the conquering king. It says, till he sends forth justice to victory. Here's the bottom line. God's plan will succeed. God's gospel will redeem. Sinners will be forgiven. It says, till he sends forth justice to victory. Again, in this tiny passage of scripture is the unfolding plan of God where Jesus will die. He'll rise from the dead. He'll come back again. He will administer justice to the nations. His plan will succeed. The world's plan will not succeed. Every evil thought, every evil deed will be punished. Every act of love and compassion and generosity won't be unnoticed by the Savior. The prophet Amos in 524 says he anticipated a time when the Jewish Messiah would establish justice for the nations, but let justice run down like a mighty stream. Justice for the nations can only come when they relate rightly to God and they relate rightly to the Savior. 
It's our ability to do that that gives us the ability to relate to each other. And so Isaiah predicted that the Gentiles' acceptance and trust of the Lord Jesus would result in them trusting Jesus. Verse 21, and in his name, the name of the Messiah, Gentiles will trust. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, there's opposition. Yes, there's rejection. But every once in a while, a person just like you, just like you, says, I want to trust Jesus as well. I want to give up. I want to put away the disobedience and the rebellion. And I want wholeness and wellness as a part of my life as well. Jesus comes quietly and peacefully to conquer men's hearts through love. Jesus warns people, flee sin and selfishness. And the life and the ministry of Jesus is so dramatically different from other so-called prophets and religious leaders. Jesus refuses to fuss and argue over promotion, publicity, position. Jesus has come into the world not to condemn the world or destroy the world. He comes into the world to save the world. And so, the Bible says that in that salvation, he will eventually bring justice, healing, and reconciliation to not just broken people, but to broken people groups. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your love. Lord, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, I pray for the, the person who's having to deal with the pressures of rejection and opposition. But I also pray that that same person will begin to experience the glorious benefits of acceptance and the knowledge that God's plan for their life and God's plan for their ministry is going to unfold and it's going to glorify him. Lord, we pray that you would make us sensitive to your voice willing to do what you've asked us to do and willing to refrain from asking us when you ask us not to do something. All the while, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. Lord, we pray that we wouldn't be a source of grief, but that we would be a source of joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.